David Kim, Becoming Fully Human. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Work. All of us desire greatness because we were made great. We were created with the image of God. Yet sin has shrunken our souls and turned us into a fraction of the men and women that God would have us be. In this sense, Jesus was the first truly, fully human being. He demonstrates what we would be like if we lived without the sin that cripples us. Reverend David Kim explains how Jesus calls us to follow him to become more like him and therefore more fully human. This evening, I want to start off with two questions. Uh, The first one is rhetorical. Just think about it in your own head. The second one, you'll actually break off into groups of three to discuss. And the first question is a biblical question. It's a theological question. And it comes from the text that I want to address this evening, which is Mark 1, 14 through 15. It's a short text. So just why don't you just listen? You don't have to pull out your iPhones or your smartphones. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And the first question I want to start off with is this question, what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom of God is near? What did he mean? That's the first rhetorical question. The second question I want to ask is, um, it actually comes from uh, Nietzsche's 19th century uh, German existentialist philosopher who, in one of his books, came up with the concept of uh, the Ubermensch, the superhuman. And in his post-God-is-dead era, he wanted to envision a humanity that was able to love this world in a way that he actually criticized Christians couldn't because they were so otherworldly, they weren't able to see the beauty and the potential in this world. And he envisioned this, this group of people, this new humanity called the Ubermensch. And he imagined people who loved this world so much that they were willing to put in the long, hard, laborious hours to create a lot of potential from all that we see in this world. And so I want you to think about this concept of the ubermensch or what I'm calling the superhuman or the uberhuman and think about how has this pervaded your professions? Because all of your professions have a sense of the uberhuman, the, the paragon, the ideal kind of person that exemplifies the best of your particular profession the best characteristics. And so we'd love to have a a brief little conversation between, in groups of three, what does that look like in your profession? Who is the uber-human? What are the qualities and the characteristics of this person? And as you guys discuss that, uh, we're gonna get back together. I'll call you all back in about uh, seven, eight minutes or so, and uh, we're gonna explore this question of what does it mean to be fully human? So feel free to go around uh, in groups of three, and if you don't remember the question, the question can be found on the back of your handout, question number one. If you guys wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear some of the answers that were um, shared with, uh, in these small little groups. What, what were some of the values or characteristics of these uh, uber-humans that came out in your discussions? Feel free to shout it out. They think that they're God. They think that they're God, deity. Self-righteous, clairvoyance, interesting, yeah, benevolent, brilliance, transformational, 
balanced. Works well under stress. Works well under stress. Invested. Invested. Good Overspent. Good looking. <laughs> that comes from the church world. I hope you know. <laughs> Anything else? Highly respected. Compassionate. Versatile. Versatile. Well, just that was a garbled mess. One more time. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Politically savvy. Politically savvy. What is a stick? Dirt doesn't stick. Does not get jealous. Skillful at their craft. Skillful at their craft. Maybe a few more. Inspiring. Make money. They could be dangerous. A leader. Well, okay, all these are really interesting terms because you really start to get the sense that in New York there is definitely the figure of the uber-human. That this is not just a figment of our imagination, but I dare say for many of us, this uber-human, whether consciously or subconsciously, really drives what we do each day. That the concept of someone who is able to do everything that your profession demands and do it at such a level that you gain the respect and the awe of your coworkers, that's something I think that we implicitly are all striving for. Because people don't come to New York to rest. People don't come to New York for, for comfort, for big backyards and large houses. They don't come for convenience. They come to become great. That is the only reason why someone would endure life in New York for years upon years. There is a sense when you walk through New York City that inspires greatness. You look at, at the buildings and the way that they launch into the sky, and there is a sense that for anyone who comes into the city that great things happen here. And for great things to happen, you need great people. Not just great people, you need uber-humans. Uber not uber-hubers. Uh, uber-humans. And each of our professions has a slightly different sense of what that uber-human looks like. Some professions, the values and the characteristics they uphold are, are either slightly or radically different from the other professions that are in this room. And so there is real no consensus of what that uber-human looks like for New York City, but we can, sure be, we can be sure that every profession has one. It's certainly true of the pastor, and it's certainly true of the, the finance person, person working in the arts, the lawyer. All of you have a sense of an uber-human. Now, the uber-human actually creates in us a love-hate relationship with New York, because the uber-human is both our salvation and it is our prison. It's the thing that you are striving so hard for, and it inspires you. It's what, on those rare moments, makes you so glad you're a New Yorker. Whether you're seeing films or shows that just inspire people with the greatness that New York City seems to exude. But it's also the prison because the vision of the uber-human is the ceaseless striving to be something that we can never be. Maybe in our honest moments we start to realize that. But in our day-to-day -day life, we start to realize that the vision of the uber-human is our prison because it entraps us, it ensnares us, it makes us work harder than we humanly should to accomplish a goal that we never can accomplish. And Nietzsche had this vision. 
He said, God is dead, but that, that doesn't mean we abandon this world. In fact, we can inspire a new race of humanity that would love and embrace this world, that takes seriously the values of hard work, that understands that it's worth getting dirty, it's worth long nights in the office to achieve this, this goal of greatness. And that has infected New York City in some significant ways. Because there is a sense that if you're not smart enough, if you're not, all the, all the characteristics you guys threw out, if you're not savvy enough, sophisticated enough, good looking enough, all you have to do is work a little harder. All you have to do is get another degree. All you have to do is get some plastic surgery. All you have to do is make sure you go to the gym every single day. And that's a particular vision of the uber-human, but we need to think about that. This is the air that we breathe and subconsciously what drives us probably most, most of our days. And we need to think about, is this the way that you accomplish or achieve greatness here in New York City? Is this the biblical vision of greatness that the Bible presents to us? And the scriptures present to us another vision of greatness because you see in, in the Bible, God endows humanity with the very stamp of his own divine image, which communicates that human beings are inherently great beings because we bear the image of our God, who is a great God. And so the, the striving, the desire for greatness is not something that I would say is part of the fall of humanity. In fact, it's part of what was, we were created for. We were created to express outwardly the invisible and inward glory of God. And so the desire for greatness is not some of the, the brokenness of the city, but rather is something that's there from the very beginning. But we need to think about how is it that we accomplish or achieve this greatness? How do we become this uber-human? And I think there are two approaches. There is the kind of Nietzsche's version of the uber-human, and there's a different, what I would call the biblical vision of the uber-human. And in Nietzsche's version of the uber-human, the idea is we're all starting at a neutral place. But there are some humans that will feel this kind of call within them to work even harder, to strive even uh, more than the, the guy next to you. And that's the person that continues to strive. That's one vision. But the Bible paints to us a very different vision. That the problem is not that we don't work hard enough, the problem is not that we're not smart enough, we're not, we're not good looking enough. The problem goes much deeper. And these two choices are kind of like this. You can try to be the superhuman by working really hard, or the, the vision of the Bible is no matter how hard you work, you will never accomplish that. It's kind of like this. If I, in my, with, yeah, there's this, um, the iPhone craze, I don't know how else to communicate it. You know, there's this desire to uh, not let Apple control your exact whereabouts and have all this information about you. So there's a subculture of jailbreaking iPhones. And those who jailbreak iPhones run the risk that they might corrupt their operating system in such a way that would render their phone uh, somewhat useless or uh, have a diminished capacity. And imagine if you had one of these iPhones that had this corrupted operating system partially kind of worked, drop, uh, phone calls would drop every few minutes, 
but you know, you're, you're, you're attached to your iPhone. You're, you're saying to yourself, I'm going to make this phone work. And so you, you buy the accessories. You buy the, the hardened case that comes with an additional battery to, twice, to make your battery life twice as long. You, know, you get an enhanced camera, one of those adapters that you can place on the outside of your iPhone to make your pictures even sharper and clearer. And you can do all these things to make this iPhone greater, but the, the bottom line is it's still a corrupted operating system. No matter how hard you try to make it better, it will never become better than what it was originally. And in some sense, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to add upon ourselves all these abilities, all these capabilities, when the Bible says to us something very simple, that humans are fallen and broken people. And no matter how hard you strive in your work, you will never be that uberhuman. Let me share with you the, um, a story uh, from a friend of mine. She's a resident, and um, well, she's a doctor now, but she wrote this to me when she was a resident. And it's a great example of how we enter into our professions with this really this grandiose vision of being this uberhuman, being the person that makes a difference in our world, that great human being that other people will look to and say, that represents the best of our field. I want to juxtapose that with the reality of what happens day to day. This is, again, a medical resident. We who were excited, nervous new interns donning long coats for the first time in June are now jaded, tired, angry residents. I now introduce myself as doctor over the phone, learning long ago that this is the most efficient way to get what I need. I refuse to prescribe pain medications to people left and right without a twinge of pity. I yell at nurses and Starbucks baristas and continental representatives with indiscretion when they are being inefficient, rude, or insufferably know-it-alls. I get to work at 4.30 a.m. and I leave at 8 p.m. My hours are filled with paperwork, ceaseless pages from nurses asking to clarify orders. Irate patients who complain about the gravy the hospital cafeteria insists on serving them. I love to tell these patients that they are lucky to have food at all, as usually I end up missing all my meals, and I'm lucky if I'm able to go to the bathroom once a day. And I am angry all the time. They never tell you when you're pre-med or in medical school that you must sacrifice compassion to become a doctor. I hope it's only temporary. My lowest moments was a few months ago. It was in the middle of the night and things had slowed down just enough for me to run down to the cafeteria for my first bite to eat all day. I had gotten to work at 5 a.m. and it was now 2 a.m. I was starving. But there was this long line at the cafe. By the time it was my turn, all they had left were microwavable meals and a few lone pastries. I put my meal in the microwave and unwrapped a little chocolate muffin I had bought for dessert, intending just to nibble a small piece while I waited. But at the first taste of food, my body went crazy. It suddenly awoke from a numb state to realize just how hungry it was. Unable to stop my own hands, I began to shove chocolate muffin into my mouth. <laughs> Tears flowed down my cheeks as I turned to face the corner, hoping no nobody would notice the streaks of chocolate around my mouth. <laughs> what a contrast of the noble vision of the doctor and the day-to-day -day reality of what these residents face. Nobility, humiliation, wanting to be exalted, wanting to hide. 
And the Bible presents that question, how will you become that uber-human? How will you experience and achieve the kind of greatness that is part of what it means to be a human being? And the Bible presents to us an understanding that we call sin that helps us begin to put our mind around this, this question of why we can never seem to, be, to achieve the things that we want to achieve. And I want to point you to a, a long quote that's found in the back of your program here. I hate to do so much reading here, but um, this is one of my most favorite quotes in all of literature. I want to read this to you. But in this quote, I want you to pay attention to how uh, this is from a, a sermon, actually, by Jonathan Edwards. And I want you to think about how Edwards presents this diagnosis of why it is that humanity can never seem to accomplish uh, that uber-human quality. Before, and as God created him, he was exalted and noble and generous. But now he is debased and ignoble and selfish. Immediately upon the fall, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness, and as, as in other respects, so especially in this. Before, his soul was under the government of that noble principle of divine love, whereby it was enlarged to the comprehension of all his fellow creatures and their welfare. And not only so, but it was not confined within such narrow limits as the bounds of the creation, but went forth in the exercise of holy love to the Creator and abroad upon the infinite ocean of good, and was, as it were, swallowed up by it and became one with it. But so soon as he had transgressed against God, these noble principles were immediately lost, and all this excellent enlargedness of man's soul was gone. And thenceforward he himself shrank, as it were, into a little space circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of all things else. Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness, and God was forsaken, and fellow creatures forsaken, and man retired within himself and became totally governed by narrow and selfish principles and feelings. Self-love became absolute master of his soul, and the more noble and spiritual principles of his being took wings and flew away. But God in mercy to miserable man entered on the work of redemption and by the glorious gospel of his son began the work of bringing the soul of man out of its confinement and contractedness and back again to those noble and divine principles by which it was animated and governed at first. And it is through the cross of Christ that he is doing this, for our union with Christ gives us participation in his nature. And so Christianity restores an excellent enlargement and extensiveness and liberality to the soul and again possesses it with that divine love or charity that we read of in the text whereby it again embraces its fellow creatures and is devoted to and swallowed up in the Creator. Now that was a long and very difficult syntactically, uh, well, difficultly, it was hard to read. <laughs> and... But there's so much content here that I needed to print this out so you could read it over and over again. But what he's communicating, what I would say eloquently here, and others might disagree, is the fact that sin has done something that we often don't think about. 
It contrasts the vision of Nietzsche that starts off with humanity being neutral and we have to be something greater than what we are. What Edwards is communicating is we started off as something that was far grander than we can even imagine right now. And what sin did, like a powerful astringent, it contracted the human soul. It took greatness. It shrunk the greatness that we were created with and for and brought to us these limitations that we bemoan every day. That sense of inadequacy. The questions of why do I always feel anxious going to work? Why is it that people never feel fully satisfied or acknowledge the work that I do? And the Bible presents to us a, a different vision of what sin has done. Sin is not simply the behavior when we're rude to people or when we decide you know, to choose ourselves over people, but it's done something far more profound. It's taken our, as Edward said, our primitive greatness and contracted it. And it's a beautiful picture in the sense that it helps us understand or diagnose our situation. And we begin to understand why it is that we never seem to be able to achieve that greatness that we feel so deeply in our own hearts. And Edwards, as he was trying to communicate this sense of our, our smallness, um, you see this concept, this principle communicated in, in other writers like Tolkien. When you think of Gollum, Gollum is the contracted hobbit, right? The orcs are the contracted elves. And we today are the contracted humans. When you sin, there's a sense that you feel more subhuman or humanoid. You don't feel that sense of I am who I should be. And even at work, when you go to work, there are times where we're so frustrated. Why are you frustrated? When you think you are achieving what you are capable of, you don't, you're not frustrated. You're not upset. But when you realize, I, I feel like I should be able to do more, but something just keeps on preventing me from doing that. You're starting to understand these images of the humanoid, the subhuman. Which brings me to that initial question that I began with, how does the gospel address our situation? In the beginning of Mark chapter one, the author begins by saying Jesus was born, was baptized, was tempted, and then all of a sudden his first, the first message he preaches is the one that I read for you. This message of the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And the question that I began with addresses the very issues that we're, we're, we're thinking about tonight, about how is it that we become these superhumans? How is it that Jesus can say the kingdom of God is near? Now, a lot of theological ink has been spilled over this question, and you can think about this question yourself. You know, what does it mean when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near? Some theologians have defined this as the kingdom of God is the dynamic rule and reign of God over his creation. But then you read in places like Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. There's never been a time in all of history where God has not been sovereign over his created world. So in what sense, if God has always been the king of his kingdom, is now Jesus saying the kingdom of God is now at hand? Or another way of asking this question is, how is the kingdom of God now at hand in a way that wasn't at hand prior to his coming? And there was an article that I read in seminary that just completely blew my mind on this question. It's written by this uh, New Testament theologian, Dan McCartney. The article was called Ecce Homo. 
And in this article, he was articulating that Jesus brought the kingdom in disrespect. He brought it in the, not in his divine nature, because God has always been sovereign over creation, but in his human nature. That the kingdom of God came when there was a human being that was finally doing what Adam was created to do back in creation. So if you kind of rewind with me back to Genesis 1, you remember when God created this world, he would call things out, they would come into being, and he would name things like the sun, the moon, the stars. And then on day six, he creates humanity, and he endows them with his image. And he says to them, rule over the land, the sea, the animals, the fish, and he begins to set up his governmental structure. That in the kingdom of God, God would rule through his vicegerent. He would rule through his steward, and that steward was humanity. So think, picture it this way. In God's kingdom, at his right hand, were human beings. And his reign would be demonstrated through these humans. So you could see now why the kingdom of God became thwarted, because once humanity sinned, instead of ruling over this world, they shrank and they began to be ruled by creation. And from that point of the fall, the kingdom of God was not being exercised in this world because humanity had forfeited their rightful reign. And that's why when Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1, he says the kingdom of God is at hand because he succeeded where Adam and Eve had failed. Remember Adam and Eve failed when, the Satan, came, when Satan the serpent came to tempt them. Tempted them with greatness. Says, you will be like God. They failed. But here is Christ going into the wilderness, being tempted not just once. He didn't succumb to the first temptation. He was tempted three times and was victorious. Says, you shall worship the Lord your God. And then Satan left him. And for the first time in human history, he was a man who understood greatness the way greatness ought to be. Greatness was demonstrated in a love and a worship of God. And that's why he could come on the scene in the beginning of his public ministry and proclaim, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. There is now a human being reigning over creation in the way that humanity was created to do. So what does that mean for us? When we think about greatness... We always think of it often devoid of Christ. We think about it in very practical terms, skills, abilities, conferences, degrees, training. And the Bible is saying those things are good and they're important. But you will never get an iota closer to greatness until you begin to look at your, the new head of humanity, the second Adam. You will not know what it means to be great until you start to look intently at Christ, who is our new head. See, when you look to Christ, you begin to realize he was fully God, but we often forget he was fully man. And it's in his role, his human role. And remember, his favorite self-designation was what? Anyone know? Son of man. He didn't want to be called the Messiah. He didn't want to be called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He said, just call me human being. Because that's what I am. I am a human being. 
And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was hanging on the cross as a human being. And one of his last statements was this, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And the spirit of Christ who lived as a fully human person, who lived this life worshiping God, loving God, obeying God, he commits that spirit to God. And then what happens later? We read in Acts 2, that spirit comes down fulfilling the prophecy of Joel upon all flesh, upon all humanity. And the idea is the Spirit of God, for those who look to Christ, is now at work to make us fully human, to restore us no longer in Adam in that contractedness of the spirit and the soul, but to make us like Christ in the enlargedness of his nobility, of his capacities, his ability not to divorce the head and the heart, his ability to go into the world to see needs and use his own mind and his strength to go meet those needs. To see someone who's not so absorbed within the, his own self, but is able to look out in the world to see the brokenness and the needs that there are and begin to start each morning in prayer, seeking the Father to give him strength for each day to go out to bring healing to a very broken world. And you see Christ in the pouring of his spirit answering that question, how can we become great? We have the spirit of God and that spirit is powerfully at work to remind us what it means to be human. We don't have to be uber humans. In fact, we can't. But what Christ is doing is he's making us fully human again. And remember, the beauty of, of what Christ did, you see this articulated in the, the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven. And what? He sits on the right hand of the Father. There you go. Humanity is restored back. There is God. There is the Father. At the right hand, there is a human being. And that human being is a new head of a new humanity, but that human being is also his son. And think of the power now that is at work in his body, in the church, to restore us to be people fully human as we look to Christ. And that's what this series is going to be about as we move forward. As we look to Christ, the Bible reveals Christ in the Old Testament in three offices, prophet, priest, and king. What does it look like for us to be fully human? Well, the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament is starting to help us understand what it means to be fully human. And we begin to understand, uh, one theologian put it this way, that the offices of prophet, priest, and king don't belong to Christ first. They, be, they belong first to humanity. The human beings from the very beginning were created to be prophet, priest, and king. That was lost. And in Christ, and through the development of the Old Testament offices, we begin to see, again, what a redeemed human looks like in the fullness of each of those offices. And so as we move forward in the next few months, we hope that you'll, you'll come back to try to wrestle with this question of, what does it mean for me to be fully human in my work? What does it mean that when we look to Christ, we begin to see what Nietzsche could only dream of, but could never do through the vision of the uber-human. 
The person who loves this world and is able and willing to fully engage it, not because of the greatness of who we are, but because we are so filled with the vision of the greatness of our God. And so I want to end this message with the, the way that Christ ended his message. He simply said this. He said, repent and believe the good news. And as we start to think about what can we do from this point on as we leave this, this place, we, we have to take to heart these concepts of repentance and belief. Repentance, which communicates that you are walking a certain way right now. Each of us are walking with a certain vision that, that kind of puts us in this almost trance-like state, that we are just walking towards this vision of the uber-human. And he says, you need to repent. You need to take a step back, and you need to say, this is not the way I want to walk. Repent. Turn. Turn your direction 180 and move towards your belief and your faith in what Christ has done. Turn towards the one who showed us what it means to be fully human as you fully engage all of your life to the worship and the love of God. He begins to show us in these two simple words, repent and believe, the first couple steps that we all must take if we're going to start to experience the greatness of what it means to be created as human beings in the image of God. And as we believe, if we have not understood that Christ requires all that we have, all that we are, we cannot walk in repentance and faith. And so as you think about these concepts, as we live in a city that continues to pour upon us the ethos of the uber-human, be reminded of what it means to be a Christian. Be reminded of what it means to follow Christ in a city that continues to put before us a very different image than Christ. Join me as we pray. Father, we have such conflicted feelings about our work. We love it, we hate it. It's our salvation, it's our prison. And much of it comes from this image of the uber-human that we are still striving to be, this human that seems to embody all that our profession and all that we want to be. But Lord, we recognize that it creates such anxiety, it creates such fears, it creates such uh, self-centeredness and ambition and jealousy uh, that really begins to derail us from experiencing what greatness was meant to be for us. But we thank you, Lord, for your son and, and what he's done in restoring the kingdom and helping us to understand that at the heart of this whole salvific work was the restoration of humanity, for human beings to become fully human once again, to take our proper place as your vice regents in this world, to serve in a manner that puts you at the center of all that we do, that loves you, that worships you, no matter what we are called to, no matter what we do. And Father, we pray that as we leave this night that you would impress upon us again the greatness of who we are as people created in the image, but it is a derivative greatness, a greatness that can only be known and accomplished as we are in fellowship with the great God that has called us back into your fold. And so, Lord, help us in our, in our vocations to really wrestle through this. What, it does, what does it look like for us to repent and to live by faith and to believe in what Christ has done as we think about Monday morning, as we think about Tuesday morning, we ask for your spirit to incorporate these things into our lives in real and dynamic ways. In Christ's name we pray. 
CFW exists to explore and investigate the gospel's unique power to renew hearts, communities, and the world in and through our day-to-day work. To learn more about CFW's programs and resources, please visit faithandwork.com.